Good evening. I'm Lizzie Barker, Stanford Calderwood Director of the Boston Athenaeum, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the first in what I hope will become a new Boston institution, a series of collaborations between the Boston Athenaeum and the Poets Theatre. Before I tell you a little bit about the theatre, however, I have a couple of mundane housekeeping matters to share. The first is that, in the event of an emergency, we would ask you to look at the illuminated exit signs at the front and back of this room and follow them to safety, which interestingly is not out the front doors, but there are more signs not to worry. And the other is to ask that if you have any noise-making devices with you this evening, this would be an opportune moment to quiet them. Those of you who are excited to learn about our collaboration with the Poets Theatre will want to mark your calendars for March 5th, which is the next iteration of this collaboration on the theme of Boston abolitionists. And for that, we'll also be joined with our neighbors and event partners, the Museum of African American History. My treat this evening is to introduce my friend and someone I greatly admire, Robert Scanlon, the visionary director of tonight's performance, the president and artistic director of the Poets Theater, who served among a various and impressive career, most recently as professor of the practice of theater in Harvard's English department, and where he chaired the Committee on Dramatics for more than a decade. He was awarded the Boston Theater Award for Outstanding Director in 1995. And I know you wouldn't be here if you weren't already familiar with the exceptional quality of the work that the Poets Theater performs. This evening, we'll pay tribute to the Athenaeum's rich historic and literary roots while we celebrate a thriving contemporary literary scene that continues to be nourished by this tradition. Please join me in welcoming Bob Scanlon to the podium and in welcoming the Poets Theater to the Athenaeum. Uh, thank you, Lizzie. It's a real honor for us to be here, and uh, we are indeed starting a series. Um, I'd like to thank, before I go any further, uh, Hannah Weissman, who is Director of Education and, and Educational Programs here at the Athenaeum for her enormous collaboration with us, and then Deborah Vernon and Brian Wanders also, who have helped us with the technical details of setting up here. Um, those of you who know the Poets Theatre know that this is one of our smaller events. Um, we actually have the ambition of doing full-scale dramatic stagings, as we just did relatively recently with King Arthur across the, uh, the common here at the Cathedral Church of St. Paul. Um, we are constantly coming up with new programming of various kinds, new venues where we work, new partners in our work. And um, I consider this a highly theatrical event because the setting itself, the Athenaeum, is actually integral to how we created this evening and we are really feeling it's the only place within which it can be properly performed. Um, I'd like to point out something which is a de detail on the Athenaeum's motto. If you look at the little words that curve around, um, among them, and the motto um, from the earliest days, 19th century, uh, is the Latin phrase literarum fructus 
dulces, which is very sweet, and it means the fruits of literature are sweet, or of literary studies are sweet. But the motto is actually adapted from something that is found in Sallust, and the original is actually a little more complex and implies a great deal more that is relevant to every single poem you're about to hear. It actually says, literarum radices amare, fructus dulce. Beautiful compression of the Latin. But in other words, literature actually has very bitter roots. And the fruit is sweet. I love the way the entire phrase has been put into where we really appreciate it in a library, in an art collection like this one. But um, we invite you, when you hear the poems that you're about to hear, to listen for that bitter root, actually, that comes to the surface and is made sweet in that lyrical voice. That is our mission, is to bring poems back to life, into life. We have, I wish I could share with you, our rehearsal process. In many ways, the rehearsals are extraordinary discussions. We think we should record them and podcast them. I, at least I do. Um, but in fact, we get into the idea of where is a poem really itself? Is it on the page? We circulate them this way and all the rest of it. I personally, being a theater man, believe that it's only in that moment of voicing where the full voice, the air column comes out and the thing exists while it hovers in the room. And it has to be both voiced and heard. Then poetry is happening. And one of the things that you may wonder, what do you do when you um, direct a poetry reading? Well, you're trying to make it not sound like a poetry reading. And my general sense is that the poetry reading is frequently very carefully disciplined by the poets themselves to sound only the verse structure on the page. Literally, read the poem. Stay out of it. Don't get involved. Let it speak for itself. And the Poets Theater is dedicated by its original founders, I might say, Richard Wilbur, Dick Eberhardt, all sorts of poets who in 1950 felt, no, we need a bigger voice. They were responding to T.S. Eliot and his call for a return to a poetic drama, his own example of writing plays in verse. And its highest ambition remains my highest ambition now that we've revived the Poets Theater which is to try to encourage our great writers, I hate to say it, but in America, playwrights are not our great writers, and, um, but those who are, and Boston happens to be enormously rich in them, are the poets, and to tease them across that line where we who are theater workers, actors, directors, designers, um, we can actually lend those qualities that we're expert in to that full voicing. So eventually you will be able to measure our success over the years if we get new plays out of this. Seamus Heaney was a great partner in all of this when I was uh, president of the Poets Theater 20 years ago. Seamus wouldn't cross that line and write directly for the theater, but he did start translating Sophocles under pressure from me and others. And we have those two huge Sophocles, Seamus Heaney's, that became adaptations as he worked on them. There are indeed original works. So, we have a tradition of musters in the Poets Theater. I used to do them every year 
And I love them. I love it. It's like home base. We're recruiting these people, these poets who are around me, to be the living poets' theater and bring it that living energy. Um, I shouldn't go much farther without mentioning Edward Glory, who was a member of the Poets' Theater, founding member of the Poets' Theater. I came in while he was still alive and still active, and Ted did this logo for us. Um, he himself loved to fabricate little evenings in the theater with drawings and sets and all his own crazy Amphigori-style um, drawings. A dear, dear friend and a very close member of the Poets' Theater. But I want to give you, um, have you look, take another look at the plate that has been advertising this entire event. Um, this is a plate that's actually hung in my office at Harvard for a decade. Um, and it has centrally Longfellow. And um, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow belongs centrally in the 19th century Pleiades. This is a male version of the Pleiades. And you'll notice that there's six poets around him. And the plate, which dates from the 19th century, represented symbolically and actually very beautifully that sense of these are our great poets. If you look closely, my poets have actually, these poets have chosen Longfellow. Two of them have chosen Longfellow. And all the rest of them fell off the list. Not a single one of them. William Cullen Bryant, Oliver Wendell Holmes, James Russell Lowell, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Edgar Allan Poe, and John Greenleaf Whittier. Sorry, we're not doing them tonight. I was disappointed at first when my poets chose the poems they did and the poets they did, and about to push around and say, hey, somebody take these guys. Then I suddenly realized, no, the deeper genius of what we're doing is actually the act of selection. These are living poets. These are the people who come here, breathe the air, open their books, have enormous respect for the tradition of poetry incorporated in themselves, hear echoes of it as they themselves work, and their choices are far more important than my little superficial plate. Although the plate itself represents something, it is also highly characteristic that these people have been willfully left behind, forgotten. I like the idea of rediscovering how they got on the plate in the first place. So maybe I'll do that in some other program. But I also love just being uh, in love with history and this building for that reason and everything in it. That sense that the respect that history bears, deserves, that sense of a tradition that we must respect, learn from, move on, change for sure, but in fact respect it. And I want to just say that um, many of the poems that were chosen were chosen out of those beautiful Library of America volumes, the two-volume set of 19th century American poetry edited and selected by John Hollander another great friend who was and did Poets Theatre with me. I directed him in New York. We did a production of Samson Agonistes, where I cast him as half chorus. Um, John is a great poet, for, as you all know, a great teacher of poetry, a great collector. We feel that he's with us through that volume, for sure. 
And also, he was very difficult to direct. If ever there was a mismatch between what I thought I was entitled to do with a poet and John's understanding of this equation, it was extraordinary. He is a Milton expert. He's, he's an expert on scansion. He has written books about rhyme and rhyme's reason. And I demanded that he pronounce the name of Delilah as Delilah, as we would all expect to hear it, when in fact he proved to me instantly that uh, Milton actually rhymed at Dalila, that he scanned at Dalila, that he was a Greek, I mean, a Hebrew scholar. He knew the name, he knew how to pronounce it, and he actually, he, Milton, put it in there. And I said, well, I'm not directing something for the public in New York where we have Samson and Dalila. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. And he says, but it's wrong, etc. And I said, no, it's not. I'm the director. But how fortunate for me that I happen to have one of the world's experts in scansion. Fix the line for me, please. So that's how we proceeded. We ended up having a terrific uh, friendship. And um, you are here at the beginning of what will be a very fruitful collaboration with these poets, with other poets that we draw to us, and with that whole idea of paying our dues, pairing off, doing justice to the poets who can no longer voice their own work. And um, I want you to all turn your programs to the second page and uh, so that you can follow the sequence of our poets and their particular chosen poems. My name is uh, David Ferry. I, I want to read a poem by Longfellow. Um, to my mind, well, I think the greatest poem that, that he wrote. Um, it's called The Fire of Driftwood. He wrote it in 1847 when he was 39 years old. The situation of it is a gathering of old friends uh, in a farmhouse uh, in, uh, near Marblehead, um, looking out at, at the port of Salem, um, in a farmhouse uh, they call the, De the Deborah Farmhouse, and uh, it's... The other poem I'm going to read, a poem of mine, is called Out at Lanesville, which is also about a gathering of friends, also on the northern uh, shore um, in uh, Lanesville. And uh, it's a poem that uh, is a kind of reading in its own terms of the things, of the devastating things that Longfellow's poem is saying. Here's the Longfellow, The Fire of Driftwood. We sat within the farmhouse old, was windows looking o'er the bay, gave to the sea breeze, damp and cold, 
an easy entrance, night and day. Not far away, we saw the port, the strange, old-fashioned, silent town, the lighthouse, the dismantled fort, the wooden houses, quaint and brown. We sat and talked until the night, descending, filled the little room, our faces faded from the sight, our voices only broke the gloom. We spake of many a vanished scene, of what we once had thought and said, of what had been and might have been, and who was changed and who was dead, and all that fills the hearts of friends when first they feel with secret pain their lives thenceforth have separate ends and never can be one again. The first slight swerving of the heart. The words are powerless to express and leave it still unsaid in part or say it in too great excess. The very tones in which we spake had something strange. I could but mark the leaves of memory seemed to make a mournful rustling in the dark. Off died the words upon our lips as suddenly from out the fire built of the wreck of stranded ships the flames would leap and then expire and as their splendor flashed and failed we thought of wrecks upon the main of ships dismasted that were hailed and sent no answer back again the windows rattling in their frames, the ocean roaring up the beach, the gusty blast, the bickering flames, all mingled vaguely in our speech until they made themselves a part of fancies floating through the brain, the long lost ventures of the heart that send no answers back again. O oh, flames that glowed, O oh, hearts that yearned, they were indeed too much akin, the driftwood fire without that burned, the thoughts that burned and glowed within. And this is my poem out, out at Lanesville. In memorial of Marianne Youngren, 1932 to 1980. She is, in a sense, a kind of ghost within this, within this scene. My poem is, uh, Longfellow's poem was in 
marvelous uh, iambic uh, tetrameter, four feet lines, and my poem is in iambic pentameter. The five or six of them, sitting on the rocks out at Lanesville, near Gloucester. It is like listening to music. Several of them are teachers. One is a psychologist. One is reading a book. The page glares white in the summer sunlight. Others are just sunning themselves or just sitting there looking out over the water. A couple of them seem to be talking together. From this far off, you can't hear what they are saying. The day is hot, the absolute middle of summer. Someone has written an obscenity in huge letters on the rocks above and behind this group of people, and someone else, one of them maybe, or maybe a neighbor, the owner of one of the cottages up behind and back in the woods, has tried to erase it and only partly done so, so that for years it will say hoarsely, fuck, to the random winds and to the senseless waves. One of them, she who has died, is sitting with her back turned to me and to the others on the rocks. The purple loosestrife and the tiger lilies are like the flags of some celebration. They bloom along the edge of a small stream that makes its way unseen down to the rocks and sand. Her shoulders are round and her whole figure has a youthful and graceful amplitude of being whose beauty would have lasted her her whole life long. The voices of some people out in a boat somewhere are carried in over the way or the water with surprising force and clarity, though saying, I don't know what, happiness, unhappiness, something about the conditions of all such things, work done, not done, the saving of the self in the intense work of its singleness, learning to live with it. Their lives have separate ends. Suddenly, she turns her head as if to look towards me and the others on the rocks. Her body, turned away, is more expressive than her face, which is a blank reflector of the sun. Thank you, David. Good evening. My name is Reggie Gibson, um, and I want to thank Bob and the Poets Theater for doing this. It allows us to um, 
commune with, with poets throughout the centuries. I think that's sometimes an issue that our culture has. We believe that poetry happens in eras and not that it is a centuries long communication from mouth to ear to page to mouth to ear to page. And so this night is dedicated to that. Um, I don't have poems to read from. I have quotes, quotations from one coming from uh, the economy section of uh, Walden from Thoreau and the other coming from Self-Reliance from Emerson. And you said we had no Emerson, but we do. And um, these two texts, I guess they resonated with me ever since I was a teenager because um, as I like to say, both of my family, my mom and my dad, they were, they were gang members. My mother was um, a Jehovah's Witness. Y'all know that gang? <laughs> Knock on the door and get you out of the bed. At and my father, for a time, was a Chicago police officer. So uh, what else could I be but an artist and a poet? Because I had to find ways to explain my situation to myself. And so the two texts resonated with me as a teenager, the part about trying to live deliberately. And uh, because I was a teenager, um, because of their themes of resistance to convention, uh, conventional thought and rebellion against societal expectations, they had a particular resonance with me. And then it happens to be at this time, I was introduced to this music coming out of New York called hip hop. And of course, my parents hated it, which meant I loved it. And these themes, as well as that music, still tend to, tends to resonate with teenagers and young adults who I had the occasion to teach. However, there is also now the added issue of ubiquitous technology in a way that was not where I was with me. And uh, Thoreau, of course, was hoping to get away from, from technology. And then what uh, does self-reliance have to ask? What does self-reliance also mean in this day of social social media and, and all things trending. So to my students, um, when I want to introduce them to transcendentalist thought, I have written something in their language, but also I slip into the idiom of jazz to help them to understand what these wonderful thinkers of the 19th century are trying to get across to them. And so I will ask you to do what I ask my students to do. I'm going to say this phrase, um, do you dig? And which, of course, they have no idea what I'm talking about. So I have to explain that. I have to footnote myself. And then their response should be, if they agree, yes, we dig. So let's try that. Do you dig? Yes, we Yes, but only if you agree. And here are the quotes from Walden. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. From the desperate city you go into the desperate country and have to console yourself with the bravery and of minks and muskrats. A stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. There is no play in them for this work after, for this comes after work but it is a characteristic of wisdom not to do desperate things. And then this quote from Self-Reliance by Emerson. Whoso would be a man would be a nonconformist. He who would gather immortal palms must not be hindered by the name of goodness, but must explore if it be goodness. 
Nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of your own mind. Absolve you to yourself and you shall have the suffrage of the world. I remember an answer which when quite young I was prompted to make to a valued advisor who was wont to importune me with the dear old doctrines of the church. On my saying, what have I to do with the sacredness of traditions if I live wholly from within? My friend suggested, but these impulses may be from below and not from above. I replied, they do not seem to me to be such, but if I am the devil's child, I will live then from the devil. No law can be sacred to me but that of my own nature. Good and bad are but names very readily transferable to that or this. The only right is what is after my constitution. The only wrong is what goes against it. Henry Thoreau told civilization, yo, I gotta go, baby. I need a vacation. So he headed out to Walden where upon he copped this revelation. Whoa, so many of us live our lives out in quiet desperation. Lo and behold, another old quotation seems to capture the essence of a modern vexation. It seems that Thoreau knew uh, in the future you and I would have to act in radical ways to mitigate the sad fact that, yes, because we've all got to slave to keep our bills paid, sometimes it seems our minds are kind of ripe to get played by the vultures in our culture, only hoping to withhold us from anything any deeper than work. While we scold you, buy what we told you, pay what you owe, uh, and we'll ensure you're in a debt you'll never get over. Treating human beings as if we're merely skin machines where the cash is, some sick profiteers, demographic puppets made of plastic, molded and then mastered, stretched thin as thread until we're bled dead into our caskets. Yes, we try to contrast it by coming off sarcastic, hating the situation because it's so, so drastic. Many of us huff and puff and snort all kinds of stuff to get blasted, hoping to deaden the pain of our constantly kicked asses. But then we find that action sometimes only serves to make the masses act more passive, which keeps their minds inactive to the plans of the fascists who hope to keep us all separated by races and genders and classes, because, well, that's the way you maintain the status quo status as is. But don't let them head fake you, shake and bake and back break you down to the ground, come around, clown and undertake you. You got to fight back, kid. And my advice is, Use the poetry that's trapped inside you as your weapon. Do you dig? <laughs> Ralph Waldo Emerson was that transcendentalist who thought that it was best to listen to your own experience and that to become a self-reliant existentialist would mean the individual would undergo a mental shift. A mental shift away from what we have inherited like cultural, political, and all religious prejudice that we should run away from any social fundamentalists. Check the way that Waldo kicks that 19th century rhetoric. To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. Don't give up because every artist was an amateur and your character is of more value than your intellect. And guess what? For every minute you are angry, you lose 60 seconds of happiness. Though the purpose of life is not to be happy, but to be useful and have your life make some difference. So learn to love, 
pray, play, chant, meditate, and then dance. Yo, you know, sometimes you just got to learn to let go and take a chance on becoming something more than you've been convinced you can be. I'm talking a transcendent human being and not this human bling thing. Yes, I know the world can be an enemy whose mission be to empty you of empathy, intelligence, and energy. Come around to destroy whatever joy you have left, beat you down, and make you want to give up your last breath. Don't let them head fake or shake and bake or back break you down to the ground. Come around, clown, and undertake you. You got to fight back. And my advice is, is use the poetry that's trapped inside you as your weapon. Do you dig? Thank you. The way I don't have a program, so the way that I was sure that it was my turn is if I look up and I see the hot butch with a lot of money. Um, so a Amy Lowell uh, is the poet that I chose. Um, she smokes cigars. She's pretty, I mean, it's hard to tell what the clothes that she's wearing, but I love her hair. And I'm going to read, uh, it's a short poem. I was looking through her collected works. I'm sorry, I'm Jill McDonough. That's Amy Lowell. Um, so I was looking through Amy Lowell's collected works and thinking about how sure I was that I was never going to have to hear Donald Trump on TV ever again. And this is what I found. A comparison. This man is like a mechanical toy, which runs and streaks and veers over the carpet with the noise of thin edges of tin whirring upon one another in spirals of shrillness. Even when you pick it up, the wheels of the toy continue to whirl, grating incessantly. They beat and wobble and whiz inconceivably rapid rings of blurred spokes and the shrill scraping pierces one's eardrums like an auger. Um, Bob talked a little bit about what it was like to rehearse with him and I haven't ever done it before so I thought I would take you backstage before I read the next poem and tell you a little bit of the comments that I made. These are the notes that I made while I was... So he didn't have a problem with any of the things that I said about Amy Lowell, but the poem that I'm going to read um, is in this book, and it's called 3 a.m., and it's uh, about my hot butch. Josie, do you want to wave? This is my, this is my, my hot butch wife. Um, it's about, she's a bartender, and so we are frequently finding ourselves in cabs uh, after last call. So it's a poem called 3 a.m., that talks about a conversation that we had with the Somali cab driver. And some of the suggestions that, first Bob suggested a bunch of alternate titles, um, including better, country clash, taking offense, love of country, spreading the word, a good laugh, and my favorite, Josie's big tip. This I like so much that I think I'm going to write another poem that's called Hot Butch Big Tip. 
It's two spondies. I think it's going to have a colon in the... I'm not sure. I haven't really started it yet. But hot butch big tip is definitely something that I wanted you to keep in mind while I, while I read the poem. So you can have a sort of best of both worlds possibility. Also, he suggested that I use the accent of the Somali cab driver, which I am not going to do. <laughs> 3 a.m. Our cab driver tells us how Somalia is better than here. Because in Islam, we execute murderers. So, fewer murders. But isn't there civil war there now? Aren't there a lot of murders? Yes, but in general, it's better. Not now, but most of the time. He tells us about how smart the system is. How it's hard to bear false witness. We nod. We're learning a lot. I say, once we are close to the house, I say, what about us? Two women married to each other. Don't be offended, he says gravely. But a man with a man, a woman with a woman, it would be a public execution. We nod. A little silence along the southeast corridor. Then I say, yeah, I love my country. This makes him laugh. We all laugh. We aren't offended, says Josie. We love you. Sometimes I feel like we're proselytizing, spreading the word of gay. The cab is shaking with laughter. The poor man relieved. We're not mad. He sort of wants us dead. <laughs> the two of us soothing him, wanting him comfortable, wanting him to laugh. We love our country, we tell him. And Josie tips him. She tips him well. Thank you. Richard Fine. I will first read a poem of my own, and then a poem by Walt Whitman from the Calamus section of Leaves of Grass, the third edition of which, 1860, by the way, was published here in Boston. Rereading Calamus, 1967. How could I have taken so long to understand you, Walt? How could I not have known what you were about, Walt? How could I not have seen why poetry was not enough for you, Walt? How could I have read you and read you and not have possessed you, Walt? 
I failed to take you literally. Failed to take you at your true word. Failed by taking you for democratic oracle, national prophet, hymnist of brotherhood. I abstracting camarado, companion, brother, lover. I abstracting the new person drawn to me, the one I love, comrade lover. I abstracting calamus taste, tongue aromatic, herbage of my breast. Forgive my conversions of you to professings of democracy, to escapist ideals. Forgive my tenured life that failed to see all you were angling towards, readying for, desired. Oh, Walt, how removed I was from all that was amorous and fluid and pressing in your lines. Oh, Walt, how off-base my notions about you, the evasions in my teaching, my book, my life. Oh, Walt, I, the teacher of reading, Myself never knew how to read. Oh, Walt, only now do I see that you even turned the dead Lincoln into the lost Camarado. Oh, Walt, now on the edge of retirement, I become free to read you truly and even see how you, in all your additions and shiftings of poems and rewritings and omissions, how you, in all yourselves' effusions and obscure hintings of an unrevealed life, how you, in your Kabbalah-like code for the initials of a lover, how you, in all your avoidings, were giving off signs you were afraid of yourself, of being exposed, of being spotted behind the blinds. So, Walt, you even misled me as I misled myself as you misled yourself. So, Walt, it turns out we are closer than either of us imagined. So, Walt, you look under my boot soles with me and we see our lives revealed. So, Walt, you and I 
are now turned into camarados, new persons drawn to one another. We two old men ready to accompany each other, each other to walk the shoreline where the last bubbles of spume reach our insteps. Now a poem by Walt Whitman, section 11, of the Calamus cycle. When I heard at the close of the day how my name had been received with plaudits in the capital, still it was not a happy night for me that followed. And else, when I caroused, or when my plans were accomplished, still I was not happy. But the day when I rose at dawn from the bed of perfect health, refreshed, singing, inhaling the ripe breath of autumn, when I saw the full moon in the west grow pale and disappear in the morning light, when I wandered alone over the beach and, undressing, bathed, laughing with the cool waters, and saw the sun rise, and when I thought how my dear friend, my lover, was on his way coming, oh, then I was happy. Oh, then each breath tasted sweeter, and all that day my food nourished me more, and the beautiful day passed well, and the next came with equal joy, and with the next at evening came my friend. And that night, while all was still, I heard the waters roll slowly, continually up the shores. I heard the hissing rustle of the liquid and sands as directed to me, whispering to congratulate me. For the one I love most lay sleeping by me under the same cover in the cool night, in the stillness, in the autumn moonbeams, his face was inclined toward me and his arm lay lightly around my breast. And that night, I was happy.
I'm Jenny Barber. The thing I love most about Walt Whitman's Song of Myself is how embodied it is. Even when he's talking about the soul, he pictures it as a physical presence, not the opposite of the body, but intimately tied to the body, or even as the body of a lover. The line between soul and lover is blurred in this passage from Song of Myself, Part 5. I believe in you, my soul. Loaf with me on the grass. Loose the stop from your throat. Not words, not music or rhyme I want. Not custom or lecture, not even the best. Only the lull I like, the hum of your valved voice. I mind how once we lay such a transparent summer morning, how you settled your head athwart my hips and gently turned over upon me and parted the shirt from my bosom bone and plunged your tongue to my bare stripped heart and reached till you felt my beard and reached till you held my feet. Later in Song of Myself, Part 25, I love the way Whitman takes a familiar phrase from the Psalms and embeds it in a context that is secular but brimming with gratitude for being. Dazzling and tremendous, how quick the sunrise would kill me if I could not now and always send sunrise out of me. We also ascend, dazzling and tremendous as the sun. We found our own, O oh my soul, in the calm and cool of the daybreak. My voice goes after what my eyes cannot reach. With the twirl of my tongue, I encompass worlds and volumes of worlds. I've spent time over the past decade exploring the Jewish Bible returning often to the Psalms. I wrote my poem when I still felt like a beginner at looking into the ancient writings of the Bible, but a very excited beginner. As with Whitman, the Hebrew concept of soul is not in opposition to the body, but part and parcel of it. 
The title of my poem is the Hebrew word nefesh. Nefesh, translated in the margin note as throat or gullet, soul, place in the windpipe where breathing grows visible and the mouth gulps air. Hatchling with an open beak, a swift in mid-flight, hunger that alights with no warning in the grass, in the psalmist's, O oh my soul. George Caligaris. I was struck by these Emily Dickinson lines about isolation and entrapment. I fear me this is loneliness, the maker of the soul, its caverns and its corridors illuminate or seal. And it's the word seal in particular that brought to mind a poem of my own, uh, a poem about a profoundly autistic deaf-blind girl who uses her self-abuse to seal herself off, so to speak, from the outside world. Emily Dickinson. The loneliness one dare not sound and would as soon surmise as in its grave go plumbing to ascertain the size. The loneliness whose worst alarm is lest itself should see and perish from before itself for just a scrutiny. The horror not to be surveyed but skirted in the dark, with consciousness suspended and being under lock. I fear me, this is loneliness, the maker of the soul, its caverns and its corridors illuminate or seal. And here's my poem, Deaf Blind. A handbook for the soul no one can read. A veil that's watered by tears. A private school for deaf-blind children in Brookline, where I worked part-time with a little girl in constant agony, profoundly autistic, the one we called Antigone. She always wore a helmet, even while sleeping, because as an infant, she'd blinded herself with her fists. An orange, perforated, styrofoam helmet to ward off the sleepless demons inside her head. 
It's one thing to sing the form, the frightened hair once left in the melting snow, another to wince at a hair lip whose trembling cleft will never depart. If she wasn't held or strapped to a chair with restraints, she'd batter her eyes and ears, her nose and mouth, as if she were trying to shut down all of her senses. Little Antigone buried alive in herself. O healing God of dreams, Asclepian snake, your cure, the spell that enters through our ears. Could you not slither through those cauliflowers? She signed with her hands, but only when prompted by staff. And then always the same three frantic gesticulations for eat and drink and more, as if anorexic language could only express the naked hunger it cannot feed as it screamed through the tongues in her hands for eat and drink and more. And yet, at the sink, with her tiny fists still clenched, she would stand calm for a couple of hours as the steady, warm stream kept pouring down over her hands until, like flower buds, her tiny fists unfurled to the faucet water. Now the gush of it splashed against her outstretched palms, ecstatic stigmata, as she alternated her hands, one over the other, as though in eloquent discourse with the one who quenched her thirst, the Anne Sullivan of the shining, babbling water, the water that held her as warm as the womb of never being born, her frizzy, unhelmeted hair, the faucet unfailing, her eyes that were never open except at the sink, her pupils like gray-blue fuses of broken bulbs, that spellbound little girl at home in the school for the deaf and blind, just standing there by a pair of gleaming knobs and the fluent, effusive water, and looking as if she'd solved the Sphinx's riddle. And here's Dickinson again. The loneliness one dare not sound and would as soon surmise as in its grave go plumbing to ascertain the size. The loneliness whose worst alarm is lest itself should see and perish from before itself for just a scrutiny. The horror not to be surveyed, but skirted in the dark with consciousness suspended and being under lock. I fear me 
This is loneliness, the maker of the soul, its caverns and its corridors illuminate or seal. George, I think we chose some dark poems. Luckily, Marsha, who follows me, will, will cheer us up a bit. Um, I'm Meg Tyler. Emily Dickinson writes from inside the moment of epiphany. She is unflinching and perceptive about the discrepancy between inner truth and external show. The poems, then and now, are a remedy against exhausting and exhaustive rhetoric. Evoking her presence tonight reminds me to remain vigilant in the face of political mendacity, hype, sound bites. Her attention to detail and the precision of her thinking are a rebuke against the dumbing down of language we encounter daily, especially that which comes through the media, social and otherwise, what Cornell West calls the weapons of mass distraction. In the poem I have chosen, she grapples with the allure of intimacy and the intoxication of loneliness. When loneliness is so familiar, why risk the unknown? Why risk exposing one's vulnerabilities further? She understands the divide that separates us from each other, the difficulty of crossing the gap between people. At the same time, she recognizes the sacredness, the inviolability of our, all of our inner lives. Here's Dickinson. It might be lonelier without the loneliness. I'm so accustomed to my fate. Perhaps the other peace would interrupt the dark and crowd the little room too scant by cubits to contain the sacrament of him. I am not used to hope. It might intrude upon the sweet parade blaspheme the place ordained to suffering. It might be easier to fail with land in sight than gain my blue peninsula to perish of delight. My poem broaches a similar choice between loneliness and something else. If this be error, light spills over the furniture, the salmon-colored sofa, the serpentine sideboard. Outside, icicles gleam like mammoth tusks and drip. I have inhabited this room along with your voice for much of the winter, mornings, afternoon, you call me away from the soliloquy where the lines I speak hardly change. Like the drifts of snow, 
and the radial black branches of the cherry. To warm myself, I recall our first night. The trees were in leaf. Words glistened between us like new stars. The syllables punctuated the night air. I saw a slight tremor above your right eye and the boyish blush in your cheek. The way you portioned out phonemes made me catch each breath in my mouth. The moon kept rising. We walked back to where I was staying as if on cue the ineluctable goodbye, our awkwardness. You were sweet and brisk, then you were gone, leaving me to work out the transfer of language by myself, the bed galactic, the earth turning the other way. Christopher Cranch lived in all the decades of the 19th century, save for the first one. And I'll tell you a little about him. Um, many of you will know him, but some of you may not. He was the son of a federal judge, a nephew by marriage to Noah Webster. He was a cousin to John Quincy Adams, grandnephew to John and Abigail Adams, husband to their great-granddaughter, he was a brother-in-law to T.S. Eliot's grandfather. <laughs> he, he visited the transcendentalists at Brook Farm and elsewhere, and he also had lots and lots of friends, including uh, Robert and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. When he was in his late 20s, Emerson published some of Cranch's poems in The Dial, Cranch himself was a Unitarian minister, an itinerant one, but he inclined more towards his art than towards his ministry uh, as a painter, an illustrator, a writer of poetry. He might be best known today, at least outside of this room, for his illustrative embodiment of Emerson's transparent eyeball. I guess I chose, this, oh, I chose this poem for lots of reasons, but one of them, it seems to me that though he writes within a very strict metrical stricture, one that was um, of his time and place, he, I, I find him quite remarkable within it. Cornucopia. There's a lodger lives on the first floor. My lodgings are up in the garret. At night, and at morn he taketh a horn and calleth his neighbors to share it. A horn so long and a horn so strong, I wonder how they can bear it. I don't mean to say that he drinks. I might be indicted for scandal, but everyone knows it. He night and day blows it. 
I wish he'd blow out like a candle. His horn is so long and he blows it so strong, he would make Handel fly off of the handle. <laughs> By taking a horn, I don't hint that he swigs either rum gin or whiskey. It's we, I am thinking, condemned to be drinking his strains that attempt to be frisky, but are grievously sad. A donkey, I add, is as musical braying in his key. It's a puzzle to know where he's at. I could pity him if it were madness. I never yet knew him to play a tune through. And it gives me more anger than sadness to hear his horn stutter and stammer and utter confusion of musical badness. At his wide open window he stands, overlooking his bit of a garden. One can see the great ass at one end of his brass, blaring out, never asking your pardon. Our nerves, though he shatter, to him it's no matter as long as his tympanums harden. He thinks I've no doubt it is sweet. While time, tune, and breath are all straying, the little house sparrows feel all through their marrows the jar and the fuss of his playing. The windows are shaking, the babies are waking, the very dogs howling and baying. One note out of twenty he hits, blows all his pianos like fortes. His time is his own. He goes sounding alone, a sort of Columbus or Cortez, on a perilous ocean, without any notion whereabouts in the dim deep his port is. If he gets to his haven at last, he must needs be a desperate swimmer. He has plenty of wind, but no compass I find. And being a veteran trimmer, he veers and he tacks and returns on his tracks, and his prospects grow dimmer and dimmer. Like a man late from club, he has lost his key, and around stumbles moping, touching this, trying that, now a sharp, now a flat, till he strikes on the note he is hoping, and a terrible blare at the end of his air shows he's got through at last with his groping. There, he's finished, at least for a while. He is tired or come to his senses, and out of his horn drops the drop and out of his horn shakes the drops that were borne by the winds of his musical frenzies. There's a rest, thank our stars, of ninety-nine bars ere the tempest of sound recommences. When all the bad players are sent, where all the false notes are protested, I'm sure that old Nick will there play him a trick when his bad trump and he are arrested. And down in the regions of discord's mad legions, his head with two French horns be crested. I'm sure you'll hear an af affinities between Cranch's poem and mine, 
And though I know it's difficult to so quickly retune your ears, I'm sure you can, and sure you'll hear how much the two poems differ in tone. Eratatam. I knew a drummer when I was a girl, and he was a man who told me his rat-a-tat-tat. They'd never had anything like me, he said, ensnared not from love but from art among their beaten men. Though we kissed after hot dogs and tasted of mustard, his rolls and his flams and his tat-a-tattoos never sounded between us. The girl from one side, the man from the other of town. He's still a man, if still he is. I'm now a woman in grief for her art. My tittle, my jot have been scraped from my song. They are mine and are perfect. Stolen, my least sheep, my grace notes, my ruffles. I've always remembered that man from our vinegar kiss and his report. Not the first, but the first I'd heard as he brushed by in kindness my life of unmuffled madness from art that if I dare master the Rademacue might be mine. Good evening. Um, I'm going to read uh, two, they're kind of elegies. They're, not a, they're a little askew for elegies. Uh, and it seems to me that um, elegies themselves are some attempt to explore or find or evaluate the some kind of essential mystery at the, at the center of, uh, of, of being human. <clears throat> um, this poem is about my mother. And there she is in 1925. Little Kisses. My mother is mad at the sun. She hates the daylight. One more new day. In a nursing home, stuck in a wheelchair, she thinks she's been abandoned. In the background, a woman's nonstop wail. My mother can barely hear me on the phone. She doesn't know she's speaking to her son. I have to tell her. She's speaking to her son. Oh, then I'm not alone. I have a son. Please, don't forget that. How could I forget that? And you? Who are you? Are we related? Of course. Are you my father? Don't you remember your father? Are you my brother? You're my mother. I'm your mother? Of course. Was I a good mother? You were. You are. 
a wonderful mother. I'm glad you're my son. What's your name? You don't remember? I can't think of it. I'm all mixed up. Are we related? You're my mother. Did I ask you that before? Yes. Are you angry? Why should I be angry? Because I'm so stupid. What lovely flowers, the nurse says. Did your son bring them? Who? Your son. Isn't this your son? He's my friend. I can't stop myself. Where is your son? Where's my son? What do you mean? Where is your son now? He's dead. Mrs. Schwartz, your son is on the phone. My son? Yes, say hello. 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 How are you feeling? Much better, thank you. Why did you call? I call you every day. Forgive me, darling. I didn't remember. Well, hello. How did you know I was here? This is my son, isn't that right? You're my son, aren't you? You came out of my body. I'm your mother. Isn't that right? Isn't he handsome, even if he has a beard? I'm your mother. I'd love you no matter what you look like. Wouldn't I? Give me a little kiss, will ya, huh? What are you gonna miss, will ya, huh? Gosh, oh gee, why do you refuse? I can't see what you're gonna lose. So give me a little kiss, will ya, huh? And I'll give it right back to you. See? I know all the words. I probably won't remember them tomorrow. Um, I'm the other person reading Longfellow tonight. And um, I think this is Longfellow's second best poem. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's, um, it's about, um, someone who is unnamed in the poem, but we know is Elizabeth Vassell, who was the wife of John Vassell, a Tory royalist who, uh, actually built the house that Longfellow eventually lived in, which we now know is the Longfellow house. Um... Uh, and uh, the poem was um, uh, published in 1858, so it's before the Civil War. And it was in uh, the volume, uh, The Courtship of Miles Standish and Other Poems. Uh, it's called, and we're not sure um, exactly where she's buried, but the poem is called in the churchyard at Cambridge. In the village churchyard she lies, 
Dust is in her beautiful eyes. No more she breathes, nor feels, nor stirs. At her feet and at her head lies a slave to attend the dead, but their dust is white as hers. Was she a lady of high degree, so much in love with the vanity and foolish pomp of this world of ours? Or was it Christian charity and lowliness and humility, the richest and rarest of all dowers? Who shall tell us? No one speaks, no color shoots into those cheeks, either of anger or of pride, at the rude question we have asked, nor will the mystery be unmasked by those who are sleeping at her side. Hereafter, and do you think to look on the terrible pages of that book to find her failings, faults, and errors? Ah, you will then have other cares in your own shortcomings and despairs, in your own secret sins and terrors. If someone had asked me some years ago to choose a poem by a 19th century American poet, I would have turned immediately to Emily Dickinson. But in the past 15 years or so, my poetry has focused increasingly on race. And so I began to look for a poem by an African American whose work resonated with my own. When I came to Angelina Weld Grimke, I knew I had my poet. Although the poem I'll read wasn't written until the early 20th century, Grimke was born in Boston in 1880 and lived in the area until 1902. A descendant of the famous abolitionist Grimke sisters, Angelina was the daughter of a white mother and a mixed-race black lawyer father. She wrote fiction, poetry, essays, and plays, but published very little poetry during her lifetime. Many of Grimke's poems obliquely address her lesbianism, which was thwarted by both her father and her times. Other poems, like her prose and drama, address race. Angelina Weld Grimke has been described as a forerunner of the Harlem Renaissance. Tenebrous. There is a tree by day that at night has a shadow, a hand huge and black with fingers long and black. All through the dark against the white man's house, in the little wind, the black hand plucks and plucks at the brick. 
bricks. The bricks are the color of blood and very small. Is it a black hand or is it a shadow? Angelina Weld Grimke. My poem is also about a tree. It describes an incident that occurred in Gina, Louisiana in 2006. The white tree. The white tree was green, shady oak in the schoolyard for whites only, until a black student sat there and three nooses were hung from its branches the next day. Three nooses, white tree. Three white students were caught and suspended for three days. Black students sat by the tree to protest. One black was beaten by whites. A white man threatened others with a gun. Three students, three days. Finally, six black students punched and kicked a white student one with a sneaker called a deadly weapon at the trial where he was sentenced to 22 years for attempted murder. One shoe, 22 years. 10,000 people, mostly black, came to town as thousands of white people had gone to similar towns to see nooses hung from trees with black bodies years before. White trunked nightmare tree. The case was retried, but cases were still pending when nooses began to appear everywhere. A professor's door, a police station locker, a highway department, a sanitation garage. Those white doors, those white walls. But back in the little town of Gina, the white tree was cut down. And here, again, is Angelina Weld Grimke from almost a century before. Tenebrous. There is a tree by day that at night has a shadow, a hand huge and black with fingers long and black. All through the dark, against the white man's house, in the little wind, the black hand plucks and plucks at the bricks. The bricks are the color of blood and very small. Is it a black hand? 
or is it a shadow? Billy Budd, Herman Melville's last novel, tells the story of a handsome, utterly innocent, and helplessly honest foretopman serving out a British man of war during the late 18th century, the era of the Napoleonic Wars. Though beloved by his shipmates, Billy's innocence and goodness spurs a pathological, a malicious sergeant of arms named Claggart to provoke Billy and lie about him, eventually accusing Billy of mutiny and sedition. Billy Budd's only flaw is an inarticulateness that had manifested, manifested itself in stuttering. But upon hearing this accusation, Billy is dumbstruck, literally. He can find no words to say in response. All he can do is strike back at his false accuser with his hands, punching Claggart in the forehead, killing him. The commander, Captain Veer, orders a court-martial, and Billy is judged guilty of insubordination in wartime, a capital offense. Thus, in accord with naval regulations, he will be hanged from the yardarm the next morning, a sentence that is reluctantly carried out. In the aftermath, Melville tells us one of Billy's shipmates wrote a poem to commemorate Billy. It was titled, Billy in the Darbies. The poem brings us Billy's voice, his thoughts, and feelings on the night before his execution. The scene is below deck. Billy is in handcuffs. Those are the Darbies in the title of the poem. Billy and the Darbies. Good of the chaplain to enter Lone Bay and down on his marrow bones here and pray for the likes just of me, Billy Budd. But look, through the port comes the moonshine astray. It tips the guard's cutlass and silvers this nook. But he'll die in the dawning of Billy's last day. A jewel block they'll make of me tomorrow pendant pearl from the yardarm end, like the eardrop I gave to Bristol Molly. Oh, tis me, not the sentence they'll suspend. I, I, I all is up, and I must up too early in the morning, aloft from a low, on an empty stomach now, Never it would do. They'll give me a nibble, a bit of biscuit ere I go. 
sure a messmate will, will reach me the last parting cup. But, turning heads away from the hoist and belay, heaven knows who will have the running of me up. No pipe to those halyards, but aren't it all a shame? A blur's in my eyes, it's dreaming that I am. A hatchet to my hawser, all adrift to go, the drum roll to grog and Billy never know. Donald, he has promised to stand by the plank, so I'll shake a friendly hand ere I sink. But no, it's dead, then I'll be, come to think. I remember Taft the Welshman when he sank. In his cheek, it was like the budding pink. But me, they'll lash me in hammock, drop me deep. Fathoms down, fathoms down. I will dream, fast asleep. I feel it, stealing, now. Sentry, are you there? Just ease the starbies at the wrist and roll me over fair. I am sleepy and the oozy weeds about, about me twist. In my first book of poetry, Tipping Point, published back in 1993, there is a multi-sectioned meditation prompted by our nation's entry into the first Gulf War. That meditation is titled Wartime. At one point in the meditation, I reflect back on my own first days in the United States Marine Corps. That was during the Vietnam War, and I should add that a couple of years after the scene described in my poem here, I will eventually leave the Marine Corps as a conscientious objector. In wartime, the poem, and in wartime, the actual condition, it is good and valuable, I think, to recall what happened with Billy Budd. Section five of wartime. I remember my first morning in the Marine Corps. Long before sunlight, we were outside, standing at attention, eyes locked, straight ahead, feet at a 45-degree angle, heels touching, soles on the painted footprints which told the platoon how to form itself. The drill instructor announced, that on his command, each of us would turn right and step off with the left foot, and that thereafter, the left foot would always be striking the deck to the sound of Lelf. The right foot, he said, would be landing to the sound of Heidel. Strung together, they composed the cadence for marching. Along with the feel of a syllabic improvisation, there was in this a thread of the joyful. 
as if the drill sergeant were nothing but an outsized wood thrush presiding over a scale that nature had allotted and commanded him to sing. Had I been asked that morning, I would have said, I understood Billy Budd. I would have said it was a parable about how the world cannot tolerate the persistently innocent. I would have said it was the archetypal inside narrative about wars in the soul, not wars of the European Imperium. In Pigeon, Christ and Billy, same, same. Today, I think of the strangest moment in that story. Just before Veer signals the hangman, Billy shouts without a trace of the fatal stammer. God bless Captain Veer. Despite being appalled at what is happening to Billy, the crew repeats his blessing in antiphonal response. Maybe they are being ironic. Maybe they so love the handsome sailor, they will repeat whatever he says. As Billy's body rises in the fleece-lined dawn, the warship beneath them cuts through moderate seas. A nation, a nation unto itself, ponderously cannoned, ponderously cannoned.